very familiar psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning, one that you have heard this expression, unless the Lord builds a house many times before, and we're going to be talking about that this morning. Listen to what Solomon wrote in this psalm. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Let's pray. Father, would you help us this morning to understand what you want to say to us today through this passage? It is a very important word about how we build not just our homes but our lives. And where do we put our faith and our confidence? Where is our trust ultimately? And I pray that you would help us to see how relevant this word is for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Life is full of choices, and the choices we make affect the person we become. We see that when we look at our world in many different places. Uh, This past week, if you were on the web or on the internet, you probably saw some of the same stories that I did that reminded me of this truth again and again. Uh, There were stories on the week, for example, of Lindsay Lohan, who was arrested for driving under the influence and possession of cocaine. And her picture was being shown about every time you went on the Internet. And I looked at that and I thought, here's this beautiful young actress whose future is hanging in the balance. What will she do? And who will she become? What are the choices that have led her to this point? And how will her life change in the future? Or I thought about Michael Vick, the star quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons who's being investigated now for dogfighting allegations. If it's true, it could be the end of his career. Probably will be. Now, why would he make a choice like that? How did he get involved in this? And what's going to happen? Why would you jeopardize your whole career for something that is so cruel? Or I thought about the story of Tim Donaghy, an NBA referee who's in trouble for betting on games that he officiated. How did he get so far in debt that he would risk doing this? What were the choices that he made that led to where he is now with his gambling problems and now his trouble with the law because of what he's done? People make choices all the time. Choices affect who we become. And they not only affect us, but they affect everybody around us who knows us, our family, our friends, our loved ones. In situations like this, it goes beyond that to the people that we work with. Choices have consequences. That's why it's important that we choose wisely how we live. And that's what this psalm is about. Psalm 127 is a wisdom psalm. It's just like the Proverbs or other wisdom psalms. It's probably not too surprising that Solomon wrote this because he was known for his wisdom as God used him to write these things down. Unfortunately, even Solomon didn't always live it, though, did he? 
It's one thing to know the truth and the way that we should live, and it's another to make the choice to do that. Well, this psalm contrasts the wisdom of living according to God's Word with the folly of going our own way. There is a way that God has shown us that is good, it's pleasing, it's honoring to Him, and it's good for us. But people don't always take those choices, even though we should. Psalm 127 addresses three of the biggest concerns that we have. It talks about our home, it talks about our work, and it talks about our family. It's a very good word for each of us to take to heart. And this psalm calls us to be more God-centered in every area of our life. It calls us to put God first in each of those areas and honor Him. In the Jewish tradition, this psalm was read after the birth of every child. So here we are. We've had some young families recently who have had a new babies born in their home. And this would be a good thing to read and to think about and consider. As you are, uh, maybe for some it's their firstborn and for others it's their second or third child or more. It's a good word for all of us. The psalmist tells us that shelter and security are gifts from God. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. The word for house there refers to a domestic shelter, our home. The principles could apply to a church or a business or things like that. You can say, you know, unless the Lord builds the church, we're going to build this thing in vain. Or unless a person commits their business to God, their business is going to be built on a faulty foundation as well. But this is talking specifically about the house. And even the word for builders there is actually a pun. It's very close in sound to the Hebrew word for sons. Unless the Lord builds a home, its sons will labor in vain also. This verse is about more than construction. This verse isn't saying that if you build a house, be sure you use a Christian builder. Now that might be a good thing to do, but an unbeliever can build a fine house as well. What this psalm is talking about is what goes on within that house. Only God can make a house a home. When Jesus is present in a home, there's a difference in the way that people live and act and treat each other. You know, I uh, meet with couples before they're going to get married for premarital counseling. One of the things that I ask them to do is to read 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter that talks about what true love is. And when they read that, they read these words that love is patient and love is kind and it does not envy and it does not boast. It is not proud. It's not rude or self-seeking or easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love is all of those things. And I ask them, you know, is that the kind of love that you have for one another? And they kind of look at me and they look at each other and they say, well, most of the time. (laughs) And I ask them, you know, about that and we talk about those things and we say, you know, that's where we are, isn't it? We're not always patient. We're not always kind. We don't always forget those things that have happened to us in the past. And sometimes we struggle with that. We need to learn to love as God loves us. And I talk about Jesus, and I say, you know, when you look at Jesus Christ, Jesus is all of those things, isn't He? And that's the kind of love He wants to produce in us when we commit our life to Him. 
And I will look at both of them and I'll say, if Jesus is the Lord of your life and He's the Lord of your life, He doesn't fight against Himself. The closer we grow to Him, the closer we will grow to one another. When God is present in a home, the whole tone of the house is different. There is love and there's peace and there's joy in that home. Sadly, I've also talked to adults who have grown up in homes where mom and dad were always fighting. And where as a child they went to bed crying and they would take the pillow and they would put it over their head and they would cover their ears so that they wouldn't have to hear the arguments that were going on in that home. I know of adults that were abused as a child in their homes and they lived in fear. Their home was not a place of shelter and security. And my heart aches for them because that's not what God intends for any of us or for any child. There are people too who build beautiful, large, expensive homes and on the outside they look like, you know, a castle in a sense. Like people are trying to build this beautiful home. But it's what's on the inside of that home that really matters. That really makes a difference in people's lives. What good is it if a home looks fine and beautiful on the outside, but inside there's loneliness and there's heartache and there's pain? And there are people who don't get along and they're fighting all the time and it's not honoring to God. How do we build a God-centered home? It is a choice that we make. A choice to follow God and His Word. A choice to put that into practice in our life each and every day. Remember what Joshua said to the people of Israel when they were about to enter the promised land? He challenged them and he said, Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua had nailed that down in his own life, that this is what we're going to do. This is the way we're going to live. We're going to honor God in our home. We're going to put Him first in the choices that we make. And we're going to live according to His Word. God honors those kind of commitments. Have you come to that point in your life? Have you made Him the Lord of your life and the Lord of your home? When we do that in our homes, it means that we'll come together and we will pray about the choices that we make. We'll talk about the Scriptures. As parents, we'll model what it means to follow Christ. We'll show by our example how to live. We'll talk about life issues and choices with our children. And we'll treat one another with love and respect in a way that honors God and honors one another. Only God can make a house a home as people choose to live and follow Him. And in the same way that God makes a house a home, God is the one who makes a city or a nation secure. Solomon writes, Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In those days, with their walled cities, watchmen were important. If they saw an enemy advancing, they sounded the alarm. They gave word so that people could come within the city. Walled cities were their defense and protection, but he is saying, but you know what? Even that is not enough. If we are relying simply upon our own strength and our own might to defend us, it will come to ruin. This psalm is not minimizing the role of police or firemen 
or our military personnel in the defense of a nation or in the defense of cities. All it is simply saying is that if we try to rely on those things alone without God's grace and His mercy, it will fail. Psalm 33 says that no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, on those whose hope is in His unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Our trust ultimately and our confidence is in God. And when we put our trust in God, He works through us to accomplish great things. He gives victory to those who wait upon Him. In doing my study this week, I came across this statement. That the city of Edinburgh, Scotland, has as its motto this phrase in Latin, Nisi Dominus Frusta which means without the Lord, frustration. That's a good word. It's based on this psalm. That without the Lord, there's frustration in our life. Isn't that? I mean, even when we as Christians, you know, we maybe try to do something on our own where we really haven't prayed about it or we really haven't talked to the Lord about that and it kind of ends up just failing and ends up in a big mess and we go, you know what? I really didn't pray about this very much, did I? I really should have waited. I wasn't sure of God's leading or timing, and I went ahead and did it, and what happens? It's frustration. Without the Lord, there is frustration. The founding fathers of our country recognized that also. In 1787, when they were meeting at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, they were deadlocked over this whole discussion about how much power will the central government have and how much will be given to the states. And there were those that were very passionate in arguing for sovereign individual states that did not want to see a strong central government. And there were those who said, we will not have a union unless we have a federal government that has certain powers and authority to govern us. It got so heated and so partisan. I mean, partisan politics is not a new thing. It was so heated in that discussion that the delegates from New York left and other states were about to leave and this whole thing was going to break up with no resolution. And everything that they had fought for in the War of Independence was about to be divided. When God used, perhaps, an unusual spokesman, to stand up and give this speech. Benjamin Franklin, who was more a deist than he was a believer in the way that we understand true Christianity, stood up and he made this speech. He said, In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for divine protection. And our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. And all of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. 
And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little, partial, local interests. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves will become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter, from this unfortunate instance, despair of establishing government by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, or conquest. I therefore move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. That speech and the sober reflection that followed it were the turning point in that convention. God used a man to stand up to simply say, I think we need to pray. And I think we need to pray every day before we begin our discussions and ask for God's wisdom and guidance. The same truth applies to today. There are times when I wish that in our own governing bodies that same heart was there. That they would say, you know, we're facing some pretty tough issues in our country about health care, about the war in Iraq, about the environment and concerns about that and a whole range of other issues. And I wish that there were those who would say, you know what, we need to begin with prayer and come together and lift up these needs before God and ask for His wisdom. Lord, help us to walk in unity. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. This also applies to our work. And what we see here is the psalmist is telling us that there is more to life than work. In verse 2 he says, In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Some do that for necessity. Some have to burn the candle at both ends in a sense to try and put food on the table. That's what he's saying here, that there are some who are working for that. But some do that because of greed. Some do that because of an internal kind of desire to simply have more and more stuff. Or they like the recognition that comes with work or the fame or the possessions or the accomplishments. Whatever it may be, they may be driven in their heart to work. But God says... There's more to life than just work. And there is a better way to live. What do we lose when our work becomes all-consuming to us? When we sacrifice our health, our relationships, our marriage and family, and our time with God. When work becomes all-consuming... There's no time for those other things. There's no time to stop and slow down and reflect on life. There's no time to think about where you're headed and what all of this is going to accomplish and what will you have in the end. That's why Jesus said, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? 
Say that you continue in this course and say that you achieve everything that you set out to and you have all of these wonderful kind of possessions or you have a large bank account. But in the process, you've lost your family. You've lost your marriage. You've lost your relationships with friends. And you've had no time for God. What have you gained? You have nothing. And that's why Jesus said, Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And Jesus wasn't saying that we shouldn't work. There are other scriptures that address those kind of issues. If someone won't work, he shouldn't eat, Paul would later say in the epistles. There's a balance between the two, isn't there? Work is the way that God provides for us, and He uses our gifts and abilities to provide for our family. And we find enjoyment in our work when we do those things that fit with our gifts and our skills and we're able to help others. But at the same time, Work is not to be the end of everything. And take all of our time and energy. Because there's more to life than work. And life is to be lived in a way that honors God. Where we can enjoy it with our family and our friends. I like how the NIV footnote put it when they said, A good harvest is not the achievement of endless toil, but the result of God's blessing. A farmer can work long hours rising early and staying up late. But unless God sends the right amount of sunshine and rain, there's not going to be much of a crop. A life lived, committed to God and His ways, will find His blessing and find that God provides in ways that we might not even have expected. And that's what this psalm says, that God gives food and rest to those that He loves. I want to ask you, and I want you to be honest with yourself, as you look at your life and kind of the stage that you're in right now, are you putting God first in your life? And are you honoring Him in your time? Do you have time for your family and friends? Those times to get together and to enjoy it socially, or having fun together as a family and building those memories? Or is life so hectic that you just need to slow down and something needs to change. Thirdly, the psalmist goes on to talk about the family and he tells us that children are a blessing from God. And we see that in verses 3 to 5. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from Him. He tells us that they are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. So are sons born in one's youth. And blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. That's an interesting metaphor that he's using there. I mean, we understand the part about sons and daughters are a blessing from God. And they're a joy to us. Kids can be a lot of work, and there's no doubt that when you uh, are a young couple and you have that first child, your life changes. And your schedule changes. And, you know, it's a lot more responsibility. And you have to think about your children now. But that's a good thing. And we think of the joy that they bring to our home and the delight that they are and the way God uses them in our life. All of that is a blessing. 
But what does he mean when he says that they are like arrows in the hands of a warrior? And when they contend with their enemies, they will not be put to shame. It's a reference to how children are not only a blessing when they are young, but even when they are old. They are a protection for their parents as we age. In a society that didn't have things like Social Security or retirement plans, the way that you were taken care of in old age was through your children looking out for you. When it talks about uh, being protection in the gate, the city gates were where the uh, fathers in the city kind of ruled and made decisions about the city. And here he is saying that this man will have sons who will defend him. There'll be a protection for him in his old age, a protection against loneliness perhaps, a protection against false accusations, a protection against loss or being destitute. Blessed is the man who has good sons and good daughters who will care for him as he ages. Children are also a legacy that we leave behind. Children are one of the ways that we will leave our mark on the world for good or for bad. There was a classic illustration or study that was done a number of years ago by a man named Richard Dugdale. And he wrote it in a book that was published in 1877 in which he compared the family of Max Juke with the family of Jonathan Edwards. Some of the men who were at the men's retreat, we saw this recently there. That illustration was shared there too. And some of you have probably heard it in other settings as well. But it's such a vivid picture of the kind of legacy that we can leave behind that I wanted to use it again. Max Juke was a backwoodsman. He was living on the frontier in New York in the early 1800s. He was a hunter and a fisherman, a hard drinker. He was jolly. He was a good friend to those that he knew. But he was averse to steady toil. If he could avoid work, he would do that. He worked only as much as he wanted to. And he was a man who did not have time for God in his life. Well, Dugdale studied his descendants, 540 blood descendants, and then he looked at the 169 people who married into the family, and here's what he found. That out of the 709 descendants of Max Juke, 280 of them were paupers. They ended up living in parish poorhouses, some of them, or living on the uh, government agencies that took care of them. 140 of them turned out to be criminals, spending at least a year in jail. 100 were drunkards, struggled with alcohol. Six were murderers. 128 were prostitutes. 300 died early in life. 67 had syphilis. Their estimated cost to society as a whole in terms of what it costs to take care for them and the loss of work and all of the things that went along with it at that time was $1,308,000. In contrast, he looked at the family of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards and his wife Sarah lived at roughly the same time and left behind them an amazing legacy in terms of their family. A study was done of the 1,394 known descendants of Jonathan Edwards at that time. And here's what he found. Thirteen were college presidents. Sixty-five were college professors. There were three United States senators and 30 judges, 100 lawyers, 60 physicians, 75 Army and Navy officers, 
100 preachers and missionaries, 60 authors of prominence. One became a vice president of the United States. 80 were public officials in other capacities. 295 were college graduates. And out of that number came other governors of states and ministers to foreign countries. It was an amazing heritage that he left behind. Some looked at this study and originally they wanted to say, well, maybe it was just genetics. You know, maybe the Jonathan Edwards and his wife Sarah had good genes and this other family had poor genes. And others wanted to look at that study and they wanted to say, well, it was all environmental. You know, it was just where they grew up and other factors around it. But the person who wrote it and who did this study was looking at the impact of their faith on their life. And that's what I see here. I see the difference that a godly man and his wife left behind and the legacy that they passed on to their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren for generations to come. What kind of legacy will we leave behind? What are we passing on to our children and our grandchildren? And are we praying for them and their future and the way that God might use their life to touch someone else? I also liked what Derek Kidner said about this passage. Maybe this is an encouragement to parents. He said, sons, and I would add daughters to maybe a handful before they become a quiverful. <laughs> and that's true as well, that sometimes there can be challenges along the way, can't there, in raising children. And yet in the future, by God's grace, they can become that kind of blessing to family and friends alike. Well, the choices that we make affect the person we become. So choose wisely. Those choices will also affect the legacy that we leave behind, the impact that we will have upon our our children and their children and the future. So be careful how you live. This psalm is a reminder to all of us to put God first in our home and our work and our family. And you will be blessed in so doing. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word. It speaks so straightforward to the issues of life and the things that we wrestle with. Those of us who are parents know both the blessings and the challenges of being a parent. And we need your wisdom daily. We need you to work in us and to help us to live in a way that honors you so that our kids might see Jesus Christ in us. And we also need wisdom to discern their gifts and abilities and how we should encourage them as they seek your will for their life and they grow and mature. Father, help us to love them, pray for them, and be a blessing to our children as well. And I pray for the kids that are here today, Lord. I pray that they would look at the lives of their parents, that they would really appreciate growing up in a Christian home and the difference that that makes. And I pray that they would choose wisely when it comes to those opportunities that they have in the future where they think about school and work and career and who they're going to marry. Lord, help them to put you first and to honor you in the choices that they make as well. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.